Okay. I think we're working. How many outfits do you take when you go out in the morning, by the way? I, I'm, I'm just changing clothes all the time. <laughs> <laughs> we get up in Sydney and we just put something on and the temperature fluctuates by a degree and that's about it. But I'm dressing and undressing. Even during the talk, I was hot. And I thought, no, I'm cold. So I put this on because I'm... These are called Tasmanian tuxedos, is that right? Is that right? Oh, oh really? So this is a trendy tax Tasmanian tuxedo vest, is that right? <laughs> okay, any more language I need to learn, please. Um, that's two words so far. That's good. Okay, as I said last night, uh, you asked me to talk about the fear of God and how it impacts congregational life. So we looked at that, obviously, in Isaiah 6. And then what I did after that is, well, and part of Isaiah 6, is I, I got on my Bible app and I looked up the fear of God, the fear of the Lord. So many references to it, and you only gave me three talks. So I decided 2 Corinthians 5 is a passage that really talks pretty closely to us in terms of the fear of the Lord and what Anna was talking about just then. Uh, this is what can make you a little bit fearful. Evangelism being ambassadors for God and how the fear of the Lord motivates us to that. Evangelism is pretty easy, isn't it? It's not a problem. You're all pretty comfortable with it. Is that right? Uh, you've all heard the excuses, haven't you? I don't know how many times I've, I've been speaking to someone who says, oh, <laughs> I'm not good with words. And I think, really? You've just been talking for the last 10 minutes and you haven't stopped. I think you're pretty okay with them. But they tell me, or, or someone who says me that they're not, you know, I'm not natural at this sort of stuff. And, you know, they've just told me, do you know there's this awesome new coffee shop? Do you want to know where it is? Oh, it's amazing. And they've just told me about the, with unbelievable passion, they've told me about this awesome new coffee shop that's just opened. I said, you're natural. But we're afraid. This is what I want to say to you this morning. I've got a little mantra, which I'm going to use all the way through. You'll hear me say this quite a few times. It's this. What grips the heart moves the tongue. What grips the heart moves the tongue. You'll, you'll hear it. You'll know, you know people in this room. You know what they're passionate about, don't you? Because what grips their heart moves their tongue. Okay? Please don't talk to me about football. You know nothing about football. And no one south of New South Wales knows anything about football. But I know it will grip your heart and it will move your tongue. Okay? Musical tastes will grip your heart. What grips Paul's heart? Well, it really comes down to two words. And they're the two words that come again and again in this passage in 2 Corinthians 5. And here are the two words. In Christ. In fact... I look through these and the word in Christ is used by Paul, sorry, by the New Testament 87 times and most of them are in Paul. And then if I, I was being a purist, they were just the in Christ comments, but if I wanted to add to them the sort of in him comments, which were clearly about in Christ, uh, then those nu that number is going to rise to somewhere around 170 what grips Paul's heart? Well, here's some well-known verses from Paul. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well done. As in Adam all died, so 
in Christ all will be made alive. Uh, you are all one in Christ Jesus. You have been given fullness in Christ. Okay, that's only five. I could keep going with another 82. It grips Paul's heart and that which grips the heart moves the tongue. So what are you gripped by? Some of you are gripped by welfare. You love to talk about your welfare or lack thereof. You like to talk about your loves or your pain. Some of you just like to drop the fact that you went to the gym this morning and you went to about your healthy lifestyle. Uh, others of us uh, are really gripped by sickness and it defines us and it's all we talk about. Uh, it's what grips your heart that'll move your tongue. Others of us are, are talking about what we do as in. Uh, by the way, what do you do? I'm in sales. I'm in teaching. I'm, I'm in medicine. I'm in plumbing. Whatever you're into. And, you know, that I know plumbers who are passionate about what they're doing. It's unbelievable. Uh, some people are into their passions. Uh, do you know so-and-so is into golf? And he'll constantly be talking about his hook and his whatever those other things are in golf. You're into computer games. Yes. You're into music. Or you're into what I don't describe as music. <laughs> Paul says this. And this is our defining verse for what it means to be in Christ and the fear of the Lord moving us. Verse 17. If anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. I have four points today. Okay, nice, easy structure. Firstly, what does it mean to be motivated? One, he talks about being motivated by the fear of the Lord. Secondly, he talks about being compelled by love. Thirdly, he talks about a new way of thinking. And fourthly, he talks about if you understand what those things what it means for us to be ambassadors of reconciliation. Okay, and once we've finished all that, we'll have lunch. Let's go through those. Paul starts firstly to talk about how the fear of the Lord motivates him for evangelism. He's motivated by the fear of the Lord. Now let me give you a bit of background of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians are really defined by two groups. In one group is Paul. But in the other group is a group of people who are described in 2 Corinthians 10 through to 13. And they're often called the super apostles. I'll tell you who they are. They're the celebrity preachers. They're up on the platforms. They go to Belgrave Heights and Katoomba and Mount Tambourine. And have you got a platform down here? Or you just go to Katoomba? They go to the platforms, okay? They are the big speakers, they're also highly into their miracles, their healings, their visions. They are unbelievable. And you know what? It moves their tongue because what grips the heart moves the tongue. And they look at Paul. See, Paul, I mean, he writes some pretty strong letters, but have you ever heard him preach? He's not much. I, I wouldn't put Paul on the convention circuit of Belgrave Heights. I mean, in fact, it's quite an embarrassment to hang out with this guy. 
You want to go on a preaching circuit with Paul? I'll tell you what will happen. He'll go and preach and he'll start a riot. If he doesn't start a riot, he'll be kicked out of town. I, I tell you, it's, it's actually, he's, a, he's an embarrassment to be around. I mean, if you even looked at him, he's not that, I mean, there's no X factor about Paul. He's not, he hasn't got that, you know, the, the preacher who just lands it beautifully, like we do in 2 Corinthians 10 to 13? <sighs> no, you wouldn't want to hang around him. Is that what's stopping you? You're not good enough? Look at verse 11. This is what Paul says. He's not a people pleaser. He says this, Since then we know what it is, you're looking at the passage, since then we know what it is to fear the crowd. See, see it there? Is that what your version has? Looking carefully. Since we know what it is to fear the people who turn up to Belgrave Heights. Is that what he says? No, he doesn't. Let me read the, my actual version here for you. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. For what we are is plain to God, and I hope it's also plain to you. Paul is motivated in being a proclaimer of the gospel by fear for the Lord. So I looked up this expression while preparing this talk of looking how is this expression that you've asked me to speak on this weekend used in the Bible. And I've just got, as I said, heaps of references. Listen to this. This is what it means to fear the Lord, as I've got different contexts. To fear the Lord means to please Him. It means to give an account to Him. It means that we fear to act against His will. It means we fear to misrepresent Him or misrepresent His word. It means we act righteously and with love and with goodness towards our fellow human beings as a result of fearing the Lord. It means we keep his commandments is to fear the Lord. It means we recognise the weight and importance of the things that God has called us to do. It means we love him with all our soul, with all our strength. It means we give up all selfish ambitions it means that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Whom do you fear? Are you afraid of evangelism? Put up your hand if you're afraid of evangelism. I'll put my hand up first. Okay, if you're all afraid, voting is compulsory, then here is the obvious question. Whom do you fear? Now, it's interesting, I, I just I said, there are a lot of visiting preachers and all the, all the faculty at Christ College do a lot of visiting preaching. And let me, let me let you into the faculty morning tea room on a Monday morning. This is our standard joke and it hasn't happened here yet, okay? It hasn't happened here. It's our standard joke on a Monday morning. Where'd you preach on the weekend? Oh, I preached in such... Did they do it? And I'll tell you, what, what, tell you what it is. This is what they do. You go to a church and you go out to the vestry. You know, that's what they have in real churches. Uh, that little place where you, you, you sort of chat away to the minister and it's, you can nearly set your clock by it. It's five minutes until church starts and the reverend sir says to you, oh Ian, sorry, there's a few people away today. There's so-and-so's away and so-and-so's away. We normally get more people than this. I don't know why it is, but numbers are down today. Now, I reckon that happens three times out of four when I preach. Maybe that's just the impact I have on people. They just stay away. But... Uh, <laughs> But it happens to all our faculty as well. And so actually what we often do is we come back on a Monday, Tuesday morning and we say, did they do it? Campbell, I'll go back next week. And I say, no, he didn't. 
By the way, do you have more people at church here than this on a Sunday morning? Yeah, yeah, exactly, I know. <laughs> why, why would you think that a minister would bother? No one else says it to me. It's always only the minister. He's the only one says it to me. Does he want me to think that his church is more, ooh, here's a funny word, successful, more numerous? He just wants me to know that really, you know, it's normally bigger than this. I've learned over time, if you want to know how many people go to a church, never ask the minister. If you want to, sometimes people ask me how many people are at Christ College. Here's the answer, never ask the principal. Okay, it's not worth it. Because they're worried about what I think. Whom do you fear? All that we do, we do before an, an audience of one. All that we do, we do before an audience of one. There is no ministry for which you will not be criticised. If you want to be involved in music ministry, you will be criticised. If you want to run the youth group, well, they'll tell you it's boring in the first three minutes you're there. So then you're going to go to kids' ministry and then their parents are going to tell you that you're not doing it right and it's going over time. If, you, uh, if you've got a traditional church where you have a garden, then you'll prune the roses the wrong way. If you do cleaning, you'll do it the wrong way. If you're on the sound desk, sorry, we had some crackling in the first session. Okay, <laughs> fix it up, Paul. Okay, uh, no matter what ministry you do, you will be criticised. And here is the question for you. What will you do the first time you're criticised? If you do evangelism, you will be criticised. Here's the answer. The answer to that question is exactly the same question. Whom do you fear? If you do everything before an audience of one, which is what Paul is saying, it will allow you to keep going. The super apostles who are doing everything to be seen, to be recognised and to be the star preachers that they are, are doing it still out of fear, but out of fear of what people think. Number one, we are motivated by the fear of the Lord. Number two, Paul says in this passage, is that we are compelled by love. He says this in verses 14 and 15. Look at it with me. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died and therefore all died and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. Have you ever been compelled by love? You know, we've become grandparents now four times over and it's all the cliches, every cliche about grandparenthood is true, okay? Um, and it you know, makes parenthood all worthwhile and all the rest of it, but it takes you back in an amazing way. The two, ways, two places it's taken me back to is one, I've thought about my grandparents a whole lot more uh, since I've become a grandparent than I ever did in between. But the other thing is, one of the beautiful things about being a grandparent is you actually watch your children become parents and it takes you back to when you became a parent. Now, let me talk to the parents in the room here. And those of you who aren't parents will just have to try to identify. Do you remember being in the labour ward when your child was born? Okay, the dads are saying, I remember. The mums are saying, no, I don't remember. I still remember with my first child, but any of them is exactly the same. She was seven pound three. She was about, you know, she picking her up and she was so fragile and this is kind of corny but it's true that the love really does come with the child it is an overwhelming experience what was i thinking was i thinking well when you're eight you'll have sleepovers and you'll keep me up all night 
was I thinking, and when you're 18, you'll be out driving somewhere with some boy and I'll have no idea where you are and I'll be ringing the hospitals and the police station to see where you are. No, I didn't think that. Did I think that, you know, I could have paid off our mortgage with what it was going to cost <laughs> me to raise you. Is that what you think? If you thought that, I'm so sorry for you. I'll tell you what I thought. I was compelled by love. This tiny, little, fragile thing. And here was my job to love her and protect her. It's an amazing feeling, isn't it? To be compelled. I get, I get a wonderful view at weddings. I officiate at quite a few weddings. We get a great view. You guys are just watching their backs. We see them. And sometimes I'm at a wedding and there are 300 guests there. But the couple are absolutely oblivious to the fact that there's anybody else in the room. It's beautiful. I see it with middle-aged middle people who've got their grandchildren and their children and their elderly parents and they're juggling all those balls and they're just compelled by love to love their ageing parents who've got dementia and who are changing in their mindset. It, it's a beautiful thing, isn't it? To be compelled by love. Paul gives the other side. At one side, we are motivated for evangelism by whom we fear. But in verses 14 and 15, he says we are compelled by love. And what is it that compels us by love? He tells us here in verse 14, because we are convinced that one died and therefore all died. You see, a, an event has taken place that totally redefines what love is. It was a brutal event. It was the cross. But what happens in the cross is not just the brutality that Jesus went through for us, but also in what it achieved. Because in the cross, it was the fact that God was no longer, verse 19, counting our trespasses against us. Boy, if that doesn't compel you to love, I don't know what will. In fact, he says here in verse 21 that God, get these words, God made him who had no sin to become sin for us, that in him, here are those in him comments, we might become the righteousness of God. That, that God has proven his righteousness. God has kept his covenant. God has shown that Jesus is the one who fulfills all that God said he would do. God is righteous. Jesus is righteous. He has done everything he says he will do. He is a God of justice. And that he who knew no sin becomes sin for us. That's what he said he would do and he did it. That in him we might become the righteousness of God. He imputes to us his righteousness. He credits to us his righteousness. So that this holy God, when I see this holy God that we were looking at this morning and the first thing that I can do is actually fall to my knees in confession but actually before this holy God, I've been credited with the righteousness of God. He kept his word. He kept his promises. Jesus said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means... My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He became sin for us. He went through our defilement that we might stand in the presence of a God. 
who is righteous. Guilt should drive you to the cross. But guilt should not take you from the cross. But love should take you from the cross. And Paul says here that he fears God. He, everything he does, he does before an audience of one. I'm afraid of evangelism. Well, whom am I fearing? I'm only afraid of God. That will drive me to evangelism. But it's not just out of fear, but it's out of I'm compelled by love because guilt will drive me to the cross. But love will take me from the cross. And look at verse 15. It's just magnificent. This is such a rich section. And he died for all, that's you and me, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. The logic is inescapable. Jesus laid down his life, and so if I'm to follow Jesus, what am I to do? Got it. Take up your cross and follow him. And so we see what is it that defines Paul. What defines Paul that allows him to go on his ministry of church planting, of evangelism, of being imprisoned, of being flogged, of being shipwrecked, and what does he do the next morning? Just gets up and does it again. What is it that motivates him? What grips his heart, moves his tongue, and he's motivated by what it means to be in Christ. Fear of God, compelled by love. Thirdly, being in Christ is a new way of thinking. Fear, love, look at verse 16 for a new way of thinking. He says, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. He says, Paul says, I'm not like I was before. From now on, things have changed. Do you know how Paul was before? He was pretty self-righteous. Uh, read Philippians chapter 3, and he says that he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He would love to stand on street corners and pray so that people would notice him in his religiosity. And basically what he had set his mind to do was to get rid of this Jesus person. Well, we did that. We crucified him, but hang on, there's a few of them left over. So what are we going to do? We're going to get rid of them as well. And so we know the story of Stephen, that when Stephen is put to death, who is there witnessing everything that happens? Paul. And he's going to go and he's heading to Damascus. And when I get to Damascus, let me tell you, we're going to get rid of those Christians there. But God did an amazing thing. God changed this man, Paul. No longer did he see things, people, from that point of view. How was he before? Look at verse 12. Before, he was one who took pride in what was seen rather than what was in the heart. You drive a Beamer? That's okay, you can. I'm just sorry for you. I've owned a couple of European cars, never again. Toyota, 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 okay? That's it, it's the way to go. Someone down here has very kindly lent it a car. Thank you. It's a Toyota. Exactly, on two counts. I saw it, I thought, yes, there'll be no problems. Okay. But they're not the only things that are seen. You can use your religion in a way that is seen. That's what the super apostles were doing. And that's how Paul was living his life, focusing on that which is seen. 
We've got, it's, it's great to go to a small group. We've got a guy in our small group, he's only just joined us, and he lives next door to the Opal Towers. Do you know anything about the Opal Towers in Sydney? Did you watch the media? The Opal Towers are, <laughs> this guy, I said, oh, you don't live in the Opal Towers. He said, no, I live next door. I think, oh, I don't know what's worse. The Opal Towers are, I think they're 24 storeys high. They're right at Olympic Park. They are beautiful units. They are still for sale. The problem is they've been evacuated about four times this year because they are structurally unsound. And he said, oh, I live next door. And I think, well, I don't know if I want to live next door either. So in preparing this talk, I actually looked up to see if you can still buy units in the Opal Towers. And you can. I'm reading from the website. You can check it up, okay? This is what it says about the Opal Towers. Uncompromised quality is evident throughout. Expansive glass facades maximise views, ensuring you'll always enjoy a wonderful sense of space and natural light, while intelligent design, beautiful finishes and state-of-the-art appliances work in harmony to create interiors, sorry, not inferiors, that are quite simply a joy to live in. I can just see people with their smeg appliances sort of pressing the buttons as the building is crumbling down. <laughs> let, me, let me tell you, what is more important in a block of apartments? That which is seen or that which is unseen? That which is unseen is so much more... Look at the previous chapter, 4.18, 2 Corinthians 4.18. Here's a verse to live your life by. Paul says this, So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. What is the biggest mistake that you can make? The biggest mistake that you can make is to live your life for that which is seen. By the way, Campbell, how successful is uh, Cornerstone Church? Don't answer. Be interesting the answer we got, wouldn't it? Or Raph, you're an elder, aren't you? Good. How successful is Cornerstone? He could give an answer that is seen. Uh, not everyone came to the camp. There's actually more people at Cornerstone than this. Don't go away thinking that we're only this many. There's actually more people at Cornerstone. Is that true? It is true. But is that a, is that a category of quality? Do you know what? Our giving's gone up by 15% this year. Can you see that? I'll tell you how you measure the quality of Cornerstone Church. You measure it by repentance. You measure it by sanctification of people being conformed more and more to the image of Jesus. Can you see that? Well, yes, you can see the fruit of that. Yes, you can see the evidence of that. But the work of the Spirit is a work that is working in people's lives in an unseen way. As I said... Uh, Last night, I, I go over to India from time to time and, and a lot of evangelistic groups over in India do paid conversions. Quite, quite paid conversions. What you do is you get a rally, give everyone so many rupees to come along and you have a mass evangelism and everyone gets their money at the end and goes back. You take a photo and you send it home to the, the supporters back home. I, I, can, I can grow a church. It's too easy. But you don't measure by what is seen. The, the greatest mistake you could do is to live your life for that which is seen rather than that which is unseen. This is a new way of thinking. Please don't measure Cornerstone by how well Campbell preaches. Because 
the success of a church is not measured by the pulpit. The success of a church is measured by what happens in the pews, in the chairs. Yeah, you could have the greatest orator under the sun in the pulpit, but if it doesn't move you in unseen ways to repentance and change lifestyle, then all it is is just another form of entertainment. Please don't measure the quality of what happens at Cornerstone by the music ministry. That's great. But if it doesn't stir your heart to the worship of God, or if it doesn't stir you to pray. Now, here's the problem. The problem is that there were these super apostles who were measuring everything by that which is seen. But Paul says in verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, he says. When I, when I lived for religiosity, for that which was seen, and the new has come. What grips the come on, what grips the heart moves the what did I say? What grips your heart? Three things so far till we come to our fourth point. Paul says his heart is gripped by the fear of the Lord, not by fear of people. Everything he does, he does before an audience of one. Number two, he is compelled by love. That guilt should drive you to the cross, but love should take you from the cross. And if it's guilt that takes you from the cross, you haven't really understood the cross. It's love that takes you from the cross, and you are compelled by that. Thirdly, he says, if we are in Christ, we have a new way of thinking. And the new way of thinking is quite simply this, we value the things that are unseen, not the things that are seen. If that is the case, and you have those motivations on board, then fourthly and finally, you will become an ambassador of reconciliation. And that's where he moves from here on in. Let me read verses 18 to 20 for you. They're beautiful verses. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message, us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Now, I was talking to Gavin at Morning Tea about different metaphors in the Old Testament in the Bible for salvation. And uh, there's quite a few different ones. Uh, this is such a, a significant one. Let me think of, think of some of the metaphors that we have in the New Testament for, uh, for our salvation. One that's very dear to us as Protestants is the courtroom scenario. It's the legal scenario. So if you read through Romans, for example, where am I? I'm standing in the dock and God says, guilty. But because Jesus pleads his merits on my behalf, I am declared to be acquitted because Jesus has paid the penalty that was mine. That's a courtroom scenario, okay? So if you've been to court regularly, okay? Some of you, Lee, do you go to court regularly? 
Sometimes, okay, any other people been in the dock? Like, no, 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 you haven't been in the dock. <laughs> if, you, if that's a courtroom, that will actually renounce you. And if you feel guilty, that's true. Any slaves here? Well, I'll give you another metaphor. Go down to the local slave market down at the docks here, down in Hobart. Got the slave markets down there. And there are people down there, it's very common in Paul's world, and there are people down there who are being redeemed. They were slaves and money is being exchanged. Because let's face it, slaves aren't really people. They're just commodities. Okay? And so we are going to redeem a slave from their bondage. I know you do feel in slavery and bondage. And that's the whole idea of redemption. And of course, slaves are people. Somebody looked upset. I was being facetious. There's other ones which talks about temple language. You know these well. Here's another metaphor for salvation. Courtroom, slavery. But I'm going into the temple now, and as I go into the temple, I need a sacrifice to cover for my sin. I need a high priest to cover for, to plead my case, that I might have access into the very presence of God. Can you see we've got courtroom, slave market, temple sort of imagery? But here's another one, and although those other metaphors are very powerful and we use them all the time, I think this is the metaphor for the 21st century. And I think we've got to, in our proclamation of the gospel, we've got to be using this metaphor more and more. And here it is, it's the metaphor of reconciliation. If there has ever been a society that is broken, it is 21st century Western society. Uh, we had recently, or quite a few years ago now, we had a big function with one of my daughters quite a few years ago, and uh, we stopped and was in the backyard and we said grace uh, beforehand. And, you know, she has lots of Christian friends and non-Christian friends. And I was talking to this person that she works with uh, and uh, after I said grace, and she said, do you do that every night? And I said, yeah, we always pray. She said, no, 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 I didn't mean the praying stuff. I mean, do you, do you really sit down to a meal together as a family every night? I said, yeah. She said, that must be so nice. I've never experienced it when she was growing up. It's really sad. I thought she was commenting on the grace. She was commenting. I said, every night when we sit down to dinner, we say grace. And she said, oh, you really do that every night. Um, I don't need to tell you about the number of broken marriages and broken families and broken relationships and fractured friendships and an inability to understand how there is reconciliation and I could go on and give you lots of examples, but I don't need to give you lots of examples because you've seen it around. I don't think there's ever been a more broken society than the society in which we currently live. I want to say to you that there is a message that our society needs to hear and they will all resonate, legal and slave market, etc. But this is a message that will resonate reconciliation. How do I reconcile with that really dear friend where we've just gone our separate ways and it's just really hard to get back together? How do I reconcile with my siblings? Uh, we all know the brokenness that is all around us. A and the problem is that we don't have mechanisms of reconciliation. See, when we were missionaries overseas, we were in, we were in Vanuatu for many years. And uh, one time when we were in Vanuatu, uh, our house was burgled, in fact, more than once. And someone came into our house and stole, we were on a little island, not the main island, and stole some money out of our house, some Australian money. And then they came back again and stole some more. Uh, 
and so we saw what was happening. You know, the person wasn't that bright, because the person then went to the bank with all this Australian money, it wasn't that much, and then tried to convert it into local money and got found out that way. And then we found out who did it, and it was, it was terrible. It was the adult son of the Old Testament lecturer on faculty visits. Mm. It wasn't a lot of money by our standards, and we just went to him and said, oh, don't worry about it, it's fine. You've got enough problems, forget it. That's what we Westerners do, isn't it? Didn't cut it. Over there, there are reconciliation ceremonies you've got to go through. If you've got to go through a reconciliation, if I have, a, if I've, uh, Rafe, if I've done something wrong to you, I will take, we will actually sit down and get Campbell in to work it with us, and I'll give you some presents. I'll, I'll make some mats for you, I'll, 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 I'll make some things for you, and I'll give them for you. I will say things to you, and I'll get somebody in, and he will pray for us. And we will actually go through a ceremony in which there is reconciliation by payment. Just forget about it, it doesn't work. You see, in Australia today, we've got a whole reconciliation movement, haven't we? With our Indigenous brothers and sisters. And I don't think we're even talking the same language. We don't even have the same understanding of what reconciliation means at that point. But in most traditional societies, reconciliation requires payment. And this is what Paul says. Christ has paid the payment of reconciliation. And so if you will not be reconciled to God through this, you are despising the payment. In fact, if you will not be reconciled to your brother and sister through this, you are despising the payment. I think it speaks so powerfully to our generation in its brokenness that we, in our broken lives, are now going out, and this is what he calls you. Please look at it in verse 20. What is your job? You have been commissioned as an ambassador. Your excellency is what I will call you from here on in. You are an ambassador of reconciliation. And we implore you, that's strong language, on Christ's behalf, because he's made the payment, be reconciled to God. And so out of the fear of God, compelled by love, with a new way of thinking, of understanding that which is unseen is more powerful than that which is seen, so we become ambassadors of reconciliation that people might be reconciled to God and so we keep going before an audience of one. A little bit later this year, I'm Jenny and I are heading over to Vanuatu. We always love going to Vanuatu. It's our, apart from Tasmania, it's our second home. We've got two island holidays this year, very different wardrobes, and uh, we'll be heading over to Vanuatu. And we're going over, it's in, this is in August, and we're going over to represent the Presbyterian Church of Australia to the Assembly, General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church of Vanuatu. We've done it once before, we did it in 2000. We went to the island of Anaitchen and we went there and, and represented it there. I'll never forget in the year 2000 when we went to do it at that time. We went to the island, which is where the assembly was, right down the south. If you go on a cruise and you go to Mystery Island, this is where it is. And it was the very first place where a missionary settled. His name was John Getty and he came from the Presbyterian Church of Nova Scotia in Canada. Now people say that missionaries have gone and destroyed culture. Really? You should read Getty's diaries. Because when he arrives there in 1848, 
he writes in his diary about what's happening. I'll tell you what was happening. Cannibalism was rife. Pity the missionaries got rid of that, isn't it? At a traditional funeral, when a man dies, his multiple wives are thrown into the grave with him, alive, and buried alive with him. And, and Getty used to hear the funerals happening and he used to race out to try and protect the wives, but they would hurl themselves into their husband's wives. It's a terrible thing that missionaries have gone in Catholic culture. Um, but he looked around him, he saw the superstition and the black magic that was happening. And you can read the book, it's called Missy Getty, it's a brilliant book. And he wrote the words from Ezekiel 37 in his diary, can these dry bones live? He stayed there for 24 years until eventually in 1872, through ill health, and he was about to die. He had to come back to Australia, never got back to Canada. He was actually buried in Geelong. He died uh, in 1872. What makes someone become an ambassador of reconciliation for that long with that level of isolation? Well, let me tell you, after 24 years of being there, as far as the human eye can see, every person on that island had become a Christian. And when I was there in the year 2000, they asked me to preach at the opening of the assembly. And I'd heard about this plaque, but I'd never seen it before. It was in Getty's church, and it's a picture of the most dilapidated church you've ever seen, and it's, it's worse than that. And basically, you come out the front of this humble little church, and there's this little plaque dedicated to Getty behind the pulpit out the front. If you ever go on a cruise to Mystery Island, go across and have a look. And the, the, the plaque says this, speaking of Getty, it says... When he came here, there were no Christians, semicolon. When he left, there were no heathens. It's an amazing comment, isn't it? God does amazing things through his ambassadors. Ambassadors of reconciliation. And so what he calls us to do is to ask ourselves, whom do I fear? What am I compelled by? Am I transformed? And can I become an ambassador of reconciliation? Because that which, that which grips the heart moves the tongue. And Paul's heart is gripped by what it means to be in Christ. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you that you who is the God who is in all awe and splendour as we saw this morning, that you have deigned that even we should be your ambassadors, ambassadors of the King. Our Father, we don't have to look very far in our society to see brokenness. We thank you for the reconciliation that comes in the Gospel. Our Father, we pray that we would fear you and you alone, compelled by love, that we would be ambassadors of that reconciliation, that there would be a transformation in families and lives and marriages and even within our church. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.